Thanks for that. I prayed that many times, many times that I would see the right kid uh, as he, walked, he or she walked into my classroom. And so, yeah, grew up with a dad who did uh, fifth grade for 35 years. My mom is still rolling. And uh, it's, it's a calling, man. I couldn't hack it, so I had to come be a pastor. So that's <laughs> a good life. Uh, I, was a, I was a literature teacher, public speaking and literature, which is why I get to do this a lot, I think. And I can't help but read the Bible the same way that I, would, that I would speak about it in a classroom. And so that's the kind of the style that I preach. I always preach in a narrative form. I see the Bible as this book, right, that is a massive story that, as a preacher, I get to step into with you guys. And I anticipate that weekly you'll come back and join me in that story again and again and again. And that's the story that I want to tell a little bit this morning. The second book of the Bible is called Exodus. And the main character is a dude named Big Mo. And uh, Big Mo said, let my people go. But it was his uh, stepbrother that said no. And so he then became Pharaoh. And that all rhymes. And it's fun if you say it like that really fast. But I won't. Um, so I'll pick up the story where Moses is running into the desert away from his birth community and his adopted community. Moses is running into the desert away from his birth community and his adopted community because he's a murderer. You didn't see that twist coming, maybe. And God met Mo at the base of a mountain called Sinai. Like Moses alone encountered God at the base of a mountain called Sinai, and God sent Moses back into Egypt, which was his adopted community, to bring out his birth community, the Israelites, back to the deserts, back to this mountain called Sinai, where they would then worship God. That's the story that we read in Exodus. And over the span of the next three months, there are wars fought. There's deaths. There's fire. There's smoke. There's clouds. There's bread. There's water from rocks. There's miracles of epic proportion, and God is on full display. And what Moses is taking those people to, his birth community, he's taking them back to the same mountain where God first encountered him. And so there's this cool place uh, in Exodus 31 where Moses is up on the mountain on Sinai, and there are two tablets of the testimony. The tablets of stone are inscribed by the finger of God. Moses goes off alone, encounters God. Here you have it. He's about to come back down, encounter the people, and give the message that God wanted the people to have and then bring them along. And if you read Exodus, it's almost confusing because this same storyline of Moses goes off alone, encounters God, comes back, brings the people back through, that happens three times. And on the third time, Moses goes up, the whole mountain is covered in smoke. There's horns, there's fire. And Moses is up there for 40 days. And here's the kicker. Moses goes up and the people down below think that Moses has abandoned them. And so they abandon him. Read 32, 
Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow, (laughs) Big Mo, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. We don't know what's happened to him. So I have a question for you, as I always do when I come here. I want you to read this verse for yourself, talk about it amongst the people who you're sitting by, and then I want you to tell me why did they want a different God? Was it because they were desperate to worship? They lost their, because they lost their faith in God, capital G, or was it because they lost their faith in Moses? They were desperate to worship, lost their faith in God, lost their faith in Moses. Take a break. Talk about it. All right, I think you guys have the right answer probably. <laughs> There's no right answer. I don't, this is just to get you moving. Okay, this one means they were desperate to worship. This two means they lost their faith in capital G. And this one means they lost their faith in Big Mo. What's the answer? You got to do this so I can see it. Okay, lots of threes. You guys went too fast. I'm getting old. Okay, threes, way back. All right, ladies. What do you think? Okay. Abstain. That's good. Okay, threes. Twos. Like it. Lost faith in big G. Deep corner. Threes, threes. Well, threes, twos. Twos. All right. Good. I don't know either, so I'm just curious what you all thought. <laughs> Here's what I do know. <laughs> I'm serious. I don't think there's a right answer. In the Bible, Mount Sinai is the physical place where there's a spiritual stake in the ground. Because Mount Sinai, Moses rocking up with these two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God, like that's the literal start of the Bible, literally. That is the start. That's the first time that we have written characteristics and nature of God. In all of Genesis, it's been revelation. It's been this thing that's revealed, but Mo rocks up and then comes down, and P.S., he gets ticked, throws him, has to go back up again, alone, encounter God, come back down. That whole pattern thing that we talked about. But this right here, Exodus 31, is the literal start of the Bible. The Bible is the place where God's nature and his, and his characteristics are overtly revealed, overtly, like it, you can read it for yourself. The irony, however, is that the Bible says you don't need the Bible. Didn't see that one coming. The Bible says that you don't need the Bible. There's this chunk in Romans that says the natural world is sufficient to know God. Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's multiple passages that said God will make himself known in dreams and visions to real people. Yet on Mount Sinai, Moses went up and God revealed his character. The kicker is Moses came down and the people revealed their character. They wanted something they could manipulate. The Bible is not for God. It's for you and I. And that right there is a beautiful little statement. Our whole series is called The Hills We Die On, and it's Christian Worldview Training 101. Functionally, it's why Christians are distinct as believers, as a, as a people group, why we are distinct 
It also, the hills we die on, the Bible, it also helps us answer some of the scary questions that our culture rightfully asks. And so I want to teach one more piece, and then I want to answer an incredible scary question that I've been given before. Um, Start with this one. The best place that I can think of in Scripture to teach us how to handle Scripture itself shows up in the person of Jesus. And so it's Luke chapter 4, if you follow along. You guys can read this for yourself. Here's the timeline for Luke chapter 4. Jesus has been baptized. He's in his early 30s. He has been baptized and sent out into the desert. He's out there for 40 days. And for the 40 days, he is alone, and then he is tempted, and he remains strong. Great job, JC. Then he comes back from the wilderness, and he doesn't go to his people. Remember how Moses got kicked out uh, or left to the desert to get away from his adopted community. Jesus doesn't come back to his birth community either. Jesus comes to... um, sinners (laughs) and not the Jewish folks because the Jewish folks don't know that they need him quite yet. And so when he launches his ministry after being in the desert and tempted, he goes into the countryside, which is called Judea. But right here, what we're going to read this morning is Luke chapter four, because Jesus comes back to his hometown. Okay. And so he's been in the baptized in the desert and tempted. He didn't succumb to temptation. Then he goes out into the surrounding uh, countryside, and now he comes home. And I love, I love what happens here. Okay, this is Luke 4, 16 and 17. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, dun, dun, dun. Uh, What you need to know really quickly about the Bible and specifically the culture of the people who wrote the Bible. See, we're the Western culture, and they are the Near East. The Far East would be Asia. They're Near East because they're east of us because obviously we're Americans and everything centers around where we stand. So we're the West. They're the East. And here's what, what Near Eastern culture's writers did and do. They select history in order to tell a narrative. That sounds nothing like our political landscape these days. But what they did in the Bible was the writers of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those folks were writing for a theological purpose. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were not biographers of Jesus. And so they were not sequential. First did this, then came this, then came that, then came this. The writer Luke right, and he totally skipped that Judea part that I told you about. He went baptism, temptation, Nazareth. Kind of cool. And so that doesn't mean that he falsified accounts of Jesus' life. It means that he was writing for a particular audience. And as a literature teacher, I'm totally cool with that because he's, he's shaping something that moves people from one place to another. I've skipped several details even in just this sermon because they didn't advance the point that I want to make. Near Eastern writers did the exact same thing. And so one of the fallacies of the Bible is that it contradicts itself. No, different writers write for different purposes. So throw that in your back pocket. That was totally free and not my notes. Uh, (laughs) I should keep reading my notes. Let's look at the story that Jesus tells here. 
or that Luke tells about Jesus. Go back one more. Sorry, Jim. That was my fault. I want you guys to see a couple things right here about, about the Bible itself and the way Jesus handled it. Number one, Jesus was incredibly regular. He went to the place where he had been brought up on the Sabbath day in church, as was his custom. There's this way that we get to hold scripture that is regular, that is rhythmic. Okay, see that? And here's the next one. He stands up to read. This is a Jewish custom. Again, whenever the Near East writers are writing uh, for us to read, we have to understand that there are customs and traditions that are built into, it, into this whole book. And so one of them is you stand up to read, and then if I was Jewish, I would now be sitting at this point because you sit down to teach and you stand up to read. Go figure. Okay? And so that is the next piece. The third one is this. He unrolls the scroll of Isaiah. Now, this is wild when you think about it. So again, Bible geek, indulge me. Isaiah has 66 books, or 66 chapters in this book. And so if you had to like roll it, any baseball players in here, former baseball players? We used to do this thing where you would want strong wrists, you know what I'm talking about, and the weight was on a string, and you'd roll it up like that. I have this mental image of Jesus hitting home runs because of scrolling Isaiah for some reason. The whole point of this thing is that Jesus was regular, was rhythmic, but here's the best part. He went to a particular spot in an entire scroll to find this one, this one place. So he had an in-depth knowledge of the Bible, the Old Testament. Okay, now we flip. Jim, thanks for that. Because here's what he stood up to read. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. favor. The undercurrent that I've been trying to build here is the Bible's not for God. The Bible's for you and I. And so if Jesus is showing us how to read, standing up, rhythmic, in-depth knowledge, it's also to reveal the overt characteristics of God himself. And so there's a few things that we're learning about God just from this one chunk. Number one, that Jesus is chosen. Number two, that Jesus carries the Spirit. The reason that he carries the Spirit is because it came at baptism. In the New Testament, in the Old Testament, Jesus is the only person. He's the only person on whom the Spirit remains. When Jesus came up out of the water of baptism, the, the Holy Spirit ascend, ascend, descended, and then it drove him into the wilderness. I told you those details to set up the point here, that Jesus walks into his hometown, his home church, and he says, the Spirit is on me. And it remained all the way until Acts 2. That's when you and I get it. Kind of cool. And then in the Spirit, Jesus proclaims four things. He proclaims good news, which is kind of like a title word. And good news has three elements. Good news is like a title, and then it has three elements. Pardon. Let's make sure I'm getting these right. Freedom for the prisoners recovery of sight, and freedom. 
and favor. Okay, so multiple things. I guess my notes are messed up. The idea here is what does good news encapsulate? I tried to boil it down uh, from my NIV version. Basically, it's pardon of sin. It's forgiveness. And that's the story that Jeff has referenced already. It's what Larry prays about as we recognize as Christians that we consistently walk through. It's recovery. It's that when I know I'm broken and I've been forgiven, that I'm whole. And because I'm now whole, I then have freedom. Guys, this is the intentional story of Scripture told again and again and again and again. And again, and some of the critique that I hear about the Old Testament is God's different than he is in the New Testament. And that's not true because when Moses rocked up to the top of the hill, Mount Sinai, there was freedom proclaimed whenever you will be my people and I will be your God. I mean, that, that is this idea of forgiveness and restoration and wholeness and sin out. These are the elements of the good news, which is the gospel. Let's make a twist here. The Bible is the only book of any major world religion that speaks of hope and grace in this way. No other religion says words like pardon, restoration, and freedom because of that. No one else. And that's the place that that we have to ask, like the number one question that I've been given on the college campus. Basically, uh, as a preacher, right, I've talked about Exodus this morning. I talked about Luke. And the discerning listener would say, Josh, you've just used the Bible to prove the Bible for seven minutes. It's been a fast seven minutes. Like you've just used, it's not, Josh, that was not true. It was 17 probably. (laughs) He was checking me. He's fact checking me back there. I was so teasing. You just used the Bible, Josh, to prove the Bible. Don't you see a problem with that? Okay, think about this. Josh, you've just used the Bible that says the Bible is true. Don't you see a problem with that? Yes, folks. That, there is a major problem with that. How in the world are we supposed to logically look at people who are far from Christ and answer that question? That's an amazing question. You just use the Bible to prove the Bible. Isn't there a problem? I have also, however, buried very skillfully in this whole sermon two answers. Answer number one, the Bible says you don't need the Bible to know God. It's Romans 1.20. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made So people are without excuse. Yeah. Yeah. The way that I try to understand this for a college kid who sits with me across from coffee is that I encourage him or her to rock outside at night and look up. And here's the reality. If they have a sense of, wow, and I'm about this big in that moment, and then if they're, they're honest with their thinking, where they say, okay, and science can't tell me where that came from, and logically, it didn't come from a turtle rising up out of the ocean because the ocean and the turtle would have to come from some. Like, logically and also scientifically, there, there's this element that says men are without excuse to have a starting point. 
And then the other thing is that I said earlier, the Bible says people will have dreams and visions. And so rather than me telling you dreams and visions, I'll tell you two stories that have happened within the last two weeks. He's having breakfast with a friend who is making his way out of some addiction. He was sitting on his bed on a particular day, and he says, Josh, I had an entire warmth come over me as I was struggling with the pull, right, the addiction point where I wanted so badly to grab that bottle. He said, I had a a complete warmth, and I knew it was God, and I have not had a pull like that, some friends. And then he told me, I'm not Pentecostal, which was awesome for him to say across bacon and eggs from me. Two days later, I was with a brand new friend called, named, I called, I called her Alice because that was her name. And uh, I'm with Alice, and uh, I start to ask her, as I tend to do, her spiritual story. And we're sitting in her house, and she points over to the door that leads down to the basement. She says, Josh, four years ago, I fell down those stairs. She goes, I went to heaven. And then she said this. She said, I have not been in church for 40 years, but when I was in the hospital in a coma, I saw Jesus. And it has changed everything about the way I live. Now, here's the kicker. Both of those people stared me straight in the eye after telling me those stories, wondering if I would believe them or belittle them because of their experience. In the Near East, when the writers wrote the non-biographies of Jesus, when they wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they wrote them for purposes, and they also wrote them using eyewitness accounts. I have a friend named Ravi, and Ravi says that to put our trust in any religion including Christianity, every truth claim must be empirically valid. That means it can be seen, measured, or witnessed, and it must be logically coherent. It must make sense. And here's the beauty, guys. Sense is not subjective. Common sense is not common for Wayman, but not common for somebody else. Common... It must make sense. So empirically valid and logically coherent. What we can rest on, the reason that we can die on the hill of the Bible, is that no book in history has been more scrutinized than Scripture. No book. Um, It is the only world religion where truths uh, claim, truths, Claims about truth and also logical coherence can go hand in hand. Because over and over and over, what the Bible asks you to do is go find the witnesses. So it sounds crazy to have a miracle, water from a rock, whack. But it also says there's a million people who've experienced it. It says it's incredible for a sea to open up and people to charge through. And then when the army charges after the people, that flood, that that the sea closes back up. And then it asks you to, to look at the Egyptian history books. Here's the deal, guys. 
I'm not making it up. But for, ye- for centuries, too, at least, <laughs> people have been scrutinizing Scripture, attempting to poke holes in it. And the percentages are Googleable, but they're off the charts. No other book in history can hold a candle to it. And so this gets me to my last point. Since the Bible has been relentless in its scrutiny, has been relentlessly scrutinized, since it's been picked apart, attempted to chop down for every single age that has been until now, it's worth fighting for. And we as Christians have to be people who can logically, coherently be storytellers about the Bible. Here's why. Because the Bible tells an illogical story. We have to be able to speak about this book in such a way because the story that it tells is grace. It tells the story of pardon, restoration, and freedom. Nobody else says that. Every, every other religion says work hard for it. And if, you mess, and if you don't work hard enough, and maybe you can trust God on the back end, it also says other world religions say work hard enough And then when you die, you can come back as the next level up or the next level down, and you can keep working. Other major world religions say remove your desires from all things. No, no one says that. Grace has been given to you. That's an illogical story. And so we must be logical in our storytelling. We must be people that can fight for and tell the story of Scripture well because it doesn't make sense. I think that's what we're fighting for. 